Welcome to the Self-Esteem and Confidence Mindset with me, Johnny Pardo. Welcome back to the Self-Esteem and Confidence Mindset podcast and YouTube video. Today, I've got a very special guest from over the seas in California. I have got Danielle Farris. So welcome, Danielle. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing with the audience today about this concept. It's really one of my deepest passions and um, I'm excited to get started. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you on here. It's always great to connect with people, but it was, um, I love making contact with you and then hearing about what you're doing. So that's um, fantastic. So what I'll do is I'm just going to, I'll introduce uh, Danielle to you and then Danielle can say a little bit about herself to you as well. So Danielle is a parent child educator trained in Waldorf uh, physiology and the Rye approach. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Yes. Excellent. I always having to check on my words with uh, uh, most of the time with myself. So that's good. She has worked in the field with children for the last 17 years and currently focuses on helping families integrate mindful practices into their parenting for a more harmonious and balanced home life. She teaches life mindful parenting classes in her hometown in Northern California, as well as offering digital courses and resources to our communities of families worldwide. So Danielle, it's, uh, once again, it's great to have you on here. So I wondered if you could just introduce uh, introduce yourself, saying a little bit more maybe of what I said and how you really got into this area. Yes, definitely. So I work with parents through my positive mindful coaching practice. It's called the HAP method. And that stands for honor, authenticity, and purpose. And those are the three core values that I believe set the foundation of a successful parent-child relationship. And so I go into you know, detail with families about how to do that. And once the relationship piece is you know, solid, then you can see that trickle down the line into behavioral issues and communication and all of the surface level things um, going forward. So I think I got into this because I was an only child until I was 11 years old. And I was the first local grandchild on both my grandparents' side. So I was always the oldest. And I had a lot of younger cousins and friends in my life. And I was always the one whose job it was to take care of everyone. And then being 11, when my younger sister was born, I really had an opportunity to have a large role in helping to take care of her. I was in the room when she was born, and I have you know, a lot of very clear memories of her growth and development through those early years. So I continued after that to have nannying and child care jobs while I was in high school. And I believe all of this just played a role into my decision to formally study early childhood education and development um, in my undergrad and graduate work. Awesome. So you got into this parenting role quite Mm -hmm. early on then, I suppose, at the age of 11, really. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I dabbled in the health and fitness industry a little bit as well, but I always just kept returning to this career path centered around children and families. And I always knew in the back of my mind and in my heart that this was my true calling in life and the contribution that I was meant to make to this world. And so I feel really fortunate that I'm able to do that now. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, um, 
it sounds like you, you you talked about you dabbled a little bit in the but not too much in the health and fitness industry mm-hmm. something i'm i'm very very keen on both physical mm-hmm. health and the the mental health side of it uh, yeah. so that's fantastic but it sounds like you were you were very very clear on what you wanted um Mm-hmm. from a young age perhaps and actually yeah. you knew what you wanted from that degree um yeah. and what you wanted to do after right even if I didn't understand it maybe on a conscious level like I didn't have it all charted out I didn't know exactly what my career path would look like I mean I you know I volunteered at orphanages and I worked as an assistant in you know kindergartens and preschools and daycares and I had a lot of different roles I was an academic tutor and I taught you know English as a second language to children so I had a lot of different areas but I wasn't really clear on exactly my spot until about the last three or four years ago when I began teaching these parent-child education classes in my local community. And it's just kind of flourished and taken off and grown since they're expanding into the, the digital platform as well. Brilliant. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've been checking out a couple of your, your courses. Um, <laughs> look, they look, they look uh, fascinating. So I, I don't have any kids to give it to, but you know, there's definitely a lot of good resources to, to take away there. So that's great. When you, yeah. you mentioned you, you're looking at helping in an orphanage, which sounds mm-hmm. brilliant, a great, a great thing to do, really giving, yeah. contributing thing to do. Mm-hmm. Was there any kind of revelations you got from there from from the kids that you perhaps you hadn't picked yeah. up anywhere else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there really was. You know, when I first signed up to do this, it was a monthly experience that I was living in San Diego, which is Southern California, right, right above Mexico. So mm. it was part of my college um, degree program, and we were going to go down there every month and work with these children in the orphanages. And I thought, you know, oh, they must need our help, like, you know, changing diapers and cleaning and, you know, reading to them and doing all of these things. But when we got there, they, they just asked us to spend time just holding the infants or playing with the children. And I realized that it's this connection piece. That's really what's missing from these children's lives. I mean, they have so many donations as far as clothes and toys and books, you know, they have millions of crayons and coloring Mm. books and everything, but they need that connection piece to make it meaningful to them and to actually, you know, learn the information that is trying to be taught with all of these, uh, you know, material goods, right? They need that connection with with a primary caregiver or you know an adult who cares and they just don't have the staff capacity at the orphanage um, to be able to give each child that meaningful connection you know time which is what they asked us to do is just to connect and bond and play with these kids and that was really a huge revelation for me um that was really early on in my uh, line of this work (laughs) Yeah, lo- lo- I'm loving what you're saying about the connection piece as well, because I think obviously that completely relates to children and children mm-hmm. uh, as a child, I've experienced it. And I, I've not known any children who don't want that kind of connection with, yeah. with someone. Um, obviously, you're a bit closer to working with kids, although I love working with kids. I used to be a teacher assistant as well, actually. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that and connecting with the kids. It's really rewarding. But in adults we you know we we love connections as well so mm-hmm. i love your point about the the materialistic things they were getting but they need they need that connection which is even more important and it's it's important as obviously as we get older that we don't just mm-hmm. 
we don't try and get a connection with someone just for the sake of connection that we get meaningful connections with the right, right people as well so it sounds like you were doing some really really rewarding work by trying to fulfill their their needs and that must have felt quite good um in terms yeah. of that connection uh, yeah yeah and and i also love you know how you're relating it back to the adult piece because you know relationships and connection they are so important like you're reminding me and adults but the the foundation is built during these early formative years so the way that we as adults will show up in relationship whether it's you know friends or with our parents as we're adults or you know intimate relationships the way that we show up in these relationships is formed in these early years it's called the formative years because that's when um, we're developing the way that you know our communication styles and our preferences and coping strategies and self-esteem are all um, being created in this young age and so it's all you know coming out later as we're adults in how you know our relationships go <laughs> so we can all kind of do a full circle there yeah yeah love love that and then sometimes um i, I mean certainly from my own behavior but I've, I've researched and did a lot on people who do what's known as self-sabotaging behavior mm -hmm. and they're like, for example, let's use a classic example, the perhaps the woman who goes from relationship to relationship, even though she's going into a relationship with a, a bad a bad guy who's not going to yeah. treat her right. Um, yeah. And that's because she's got these beliefs formed typically inside of her and she's not always mm -hmm. aware of them. So um, I absolutely love what you're saying about the the connection piece there and making sure we're, we're on top and helping them as much as possible create those healthy relationships and connection early on yes yeah and you know not only that does it you know help set that foundation but it there's also an element to that that we're talking about called co-regulation and it mm. helps the children develop their emotional intelligence and sense of self in the world by kind of feeding off of their primary caregiver so if we are um, dealing with a situation in a calm, you know, collected, mindful, intentional state that we're actually imprinting that state of being onto the child's nervous system. So there's scientific evidence showing this connection and the child is going to then be in that calm, collected, mindful state to, to take on a problem when they see their primary caregiver doing the same. So there's a lot that we can do working within ourselves to make sure that we are approaching situations from a place of intention and clarity, which is going to help benefit the child, even if we're not directly teaching or doing something to the child, just by being in that state ourselves is going to have a huge impact. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love I love how we're kind of we're both focused on this area of making people feel as good as possible, but particularly your focus is earlier on. Um, I mean, where, where I look is typically, you know, perhaps they didn't have the best childhood or perhaps the negative experience have happened. But yeah. actually, how do we look at these beliefs and how okay. do we create new ones, new identities, new habits? Okay. Um, uh, so so that's that's really valuable work. Um, so my my next question really is the the world the world can be quite a, a challenging place uh it's a it can be a very lovely place as well there's obviously i'm not saying it's all negative but there can be some challenges in life with things coming at us of course um so what have you found perhaps were particularly helpful habits to embed in children early on when you've worked with them 
or try and encourage them obviously you can't force them but <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly so this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes and it's by the founder of my training philosophy her name is magda gerber she's the founder of that rye approach and she says parenting is among one of the most challenging quests that we take on it's impossible quest really because we are parenting children today based on a knowledge of the past in order to prepare them for a future that's unknown, right? So we don't know what kinds of challenges our children will face in their adult life. We can't predict and foresee 20, 30 years into the future from now. So we don't really know what skills that they're going to need or how to prepare them, right? It, I mean, it's truly unknown. There's new technologies and you know, pandemics, who could have predicted this, you know, coming and we don't really know. So that's why I like to revert back to one of the most timeless and valuable qualities that will thrive in even an unknown future. And that is resiliency. So no matter what the future that our children will live in looks like, no matter what challenges or curveballs are up against, they can't go wrong with resiliency. The more resilient your child is, the more they'll be able to ride the waves and roll with the punches and come out on top in an unpredictable and ever-changing environment. And you know, parents have the ability to help children build a strong sense of resiliency from very, very early age. And you know, if you're if you're up for it now, I'd love to break this down for you on a very micro layer so that you can see the intricacies of what I'm talking about. Um, if you're ready. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, please. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to use the example of choosing to prop a baby up to a seated position. If you've been around kids or parent, you know, you can, you can help a baby who's not able to sit up, get on their own sit up by arranging the pillows, right. Or putting them, you know, in a little bouncer or some kind of contraption or device to get them to sit up. It's enjoyable for them to have an upright view of the world. Um, even though they can't get to that position themselves. So like I said, this is a very micro level, so just roll with me here. But as you know, you know, we as parents, for those of you who are parents listening, we can't stand to hear our child fussing or be displeased. We want them to be comfortable and happy. And so propping up a baby uh, often helps them be happier, right? But I wanna take a look at the difference between a baby who is propped up and a baby who is not with that resiliency piece in mind. Okay, so baby number one who is not regularly propped up to seated, they must go through the natural developmental sequence of first learning how to roll from their back onto one side. And then they're learning how to roll over onto their stomach. And then they're learning how to push themselves up with one arm, okay? And all the while they're strengthening these essential core stabilization muscles and upper body muscles that are needed to physically sustain a sitting up posture in a healthy way. Now it takes much longer, a matter of several months um, to experience what it's like to see the world from upright if you don't prop them up, right? It's gonna take them a lot longer. But baby number two, who is propped up with pillows and bouncers and harnesses and stuff, they're not going to have the skeletal structure, um, the strength in their skeletal structure to appropriate, appropriately support the weight of their disproportionate sized head, right? And the first child, has learned perseverance, body mechanics, the difference between rest versus effort, 
they've learned the payoff of hard work and they've often learned some kind of innovation that plays a role in a creative process that they've discovered from their own internal will to get from supine lying flat on their back to being able to sit up. They've gone from point A to point B overcoming setbacks and through a multitude of failed attempts, they develop resiliency at a deep, deep level here. Whereas if we look at baby number two, they've learned very little and they're unaware of the months of struggle and milestone achievement that they've missed by being propped up far ahead of schedule from their peers. They often lack the muscle tone and control that do not develop during those critical windows when instead of going through the natural progression sequence, they were just instead propped up by an adult. Okay, so I could go on and on here, but the key takeaway from this story is don't interfere with nature. Okay, the human body was designed to develop both physical and cognitive elements in a specific sequence. Setting the child up to be equipped with the necessary skills to thrive evolutionarily. So when we adults take it upon ourselves to bypass and skip and override these essential linear progressions of development, both physical and cognitive, we are inadvertently interfering with nature and we're causing gaps in that developmental foundation that is so critical, okay? So one more quote from um, Magda Gerber, she says, when a child is ready to do something, they will. I hear a lot of parents coming to me like, when will they be ready you know, to do this or that? And when will they roll over? When will they crawl? And when they're ready, they will do it. So if a child can't sit up on their own, they're not ready. If they can't walk, they're not ready. I've seen so many people with their you know, six to eight month olds holding their arms up, kind of walking these toddlers that are clearly months of months behind being able to walk, thinking that they're teaching walking, but really what they're doing is they're overriding and skipping essential foundational developmental steps along the way. Does that make sense? Oh, it's fascinating. I'm really, really interested. I mean, I don't even have any kids, but it's uh, definitely fascinated me. And it's just that those skills of uh, the key point you made of like resilience and not mm -hmm. it interfering with nature and then trying to give it to them all because actually if we do that it could impact on their ability when tough things do come their way later in life perhaps um, yes yes exactly you know and, and that's just one example there's infinite examples right this includes to this includes things like um you know teaching numbers and letters too early to children so we have a, a quote that we say um, at, my, at my work, which is, you know, don't do the kindergarten teacher's job for her. So there's a time when the brain is prepped and ready for symbolic associations, which is what letters and numbers are. They're symbolic representations of something. And earlier than kindergarten is not that time, right? But there's so many, you know, two and three-year-olds, at least in our culture here in the U.S., who have to know the alphabet and be able to count to 50, things like that. But anytime we try to rush or expedite or force or coax a child to do something that they're not ready for. It doesn't mean they're not capable of memorizing a bunch of numbers and letters, but it's not meaningful to them. You're not actually teaching it in a meaningful way if you're doing it before their physical brain is developmentally at the time when they can learn symbolic representation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I was um, 
Yeah, I was yeah. fascinated by your um your story and the examples. It was a really good example, actually, that you could, you know, you could have the right intention to help help someone oh, yeah. um, as a young age. And uh, we all have a different styles, but uh, the key yeah. thing I picked out, and it's definitely something that's really really helped me through life, is the resilience as well. And um, I, I've got like family members who very who've been very strong in that as well. Um, fortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, no, that's brilliant. Um, the the kind of next question I had is, say you, you, you we talked about some of these things we encourage our kids to do or kind of don't force them to do, but it's about maybe mm-hmm. helping them develop certain skills. But if we see a, if you see a kid struggling with self-esteem, perhaps he's a bit older than that age, um, what would you typically, how would you approach that? Yeah, so I have um, about three three key topics here that I cover in my programs that I'll share with you now that, that I recommend to parents to help encourage self-esteem um, in children. Is that what you're asking? A little bit older than the infant, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and you know, and usually none of these three things that I'm going to recommend are what typically first come to people's minds. Um, and we don't have time to cover all of these three areas in detail, but I want to give you just a general overview of each so you have an initial good understanding. The first one is the nature of our physical contact with children. So how we touch and hold you know, babies, toddlers, and children from the very beginning, it sends a message about their worth and value that they hold of themselves in the world. So when we can use respectful practices like asking children before we pick them up or wipe their nose or brush their hair before doing these behaviors to them, we can set a tone that their preferences, their choices, their values, that those things matter in the world. And that is really huge um, with all children as well as being mindful and respectful to the degree in which we force them to be affectionate to others. We have that a lot here and, you know, you need to give grandma a hug or you need to give Aunt Kitty a kiss or or things like that. And, you know, forcing children to display physical affection when inside they're saying, I'm not ready for this, this makes me feel uncomfortable, um, is not beneficial to either the relationship that the parent holds with that child and then their overall development of self-worth and self-esteem. Yeah, just could I just jump in on yeah, that yeah, because um that's a really interesting point and often uh, and it's certainly the case for me and it's generally um, a case for a lot of people is people have this feelings of I am not enough is usually the the root cause of their self esteem mm-hmm. and I suppose yeah. um, a lot of what people do struggle with self esteem is look for that external validation mm-hmm. absent from their own self-worth and their self-love they look yeah. for this external validation from other people to get their approval so mm-hmm. is that a little bit of what you're saying in terms of yeah. not trying to give their grandma or their aunties a kiss to kind of be good yes yes that is actually huge and it ties perfectly into the second one which is similar to mm-hmm. you know the physical piece but that's about the language that we use to speak to and about our children, I'm so sorry. Oops. Sorry, I don't know how that happened. Um, so it's about the language that we use to speak to our children. And that's something like, you know, saying good job all the time. So that's where you're, you're speaking about looking for that external 
um, validation really is every time you do something, do you need to hear, was that a good job? Did I do good? You know, was that right? That's kind of reading that into them. If we're constantly following them around and commenting, good job, good job, good job to everything that they're doing. That's a judgment that we are passing on to the child. We're saying, we judge this behavior as good. We judge, you know, your ability to color in the lines as good. We judge you sharing that toy with your, you know, cousin as good. And it sets up a dichotomy of, you know, good versus bad. And then the child, you know, can reflect inwardly like, well, what if I hadn't shared the toy? What if I didn't color in the lines? Does that make me bad? You know, so we do take a really deep look at the language that we use and avoiding, you know, we call it the good job rut is huge because it's so ingrained in our parenting culture, at least here in the US. And yet there's enormous scientific brain research showing that it's a relatively meaningless phrase to both adults and children. And when children um, are applauded for doing just basic, performing basic you know, expectations of family life or applauded for using the potty, right? Or applauded for learning to use a spoon. These are just natural developments and they have this intrinsic motivation to want to grow and develop and learn and integrate into society. And when we're, you know, clapping for them that they're doing it, it can feel patronizing and they can feel embarrassed. It hurts their self-esteem and it can decrease their ability to develop that intrinsic motivation to do these things. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd really, yeah, it's really, I'm, I'm so glad I've connected with you. It's just, this is all fascinating stuff. And um, it just reminds me of something I read in the book. I'm usually very sharp on my books and like where something came from. But I do remember reading um, that that when you, like a kid does a good drawing, for example, mm -hmm. and then they take it home and then that their mum or dad, their mum says, oh, you I'm so proud of you. You've done a great drawing. Instead, it's... They were saying it's better to say that is a great drawing, but I love you because of you, not because mm -hmm. of the drawing. And those, those, yeah. I suppose, are those really yeah. clear little differences. Love them mm -hmm. because they're enough already rather right. than them thinking, oh, I have to do a good drawing to be loved. Right. Yes, exactly. And, you know, going back to that drawing example, you know, you can say, you know, you did this. Uh, picture, how do you feel about it? You know, sometimes I've, I've had that example that you're mentioning, the kid brings it home and the mom says, oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful drawing. And, you know, they say, oh, well, this is, this is my representation of, you know, a bad dream I had when I got in a bike crash, you know, this is what it was. So you don't want to assume and judge and say everything is great and wonderful all the time. We want to be authentic and receptive to what it is for them. Like, Children work through painful emotions and difficult emotions through art and play a lot of times. So if everything is always, you know, beautiful and great and wonderful, that's not really giving them an authentic chance to work through some struggles and maybe drawing a picture of a painful experience they had is their way of processing that emotion. And so we don't want to jump in and say, you know, this looks great. Like, what is this? A flower? Like, no, this is blood from when I cut my knee, you know, and I fell, something like that. Yeah, love that. So that was the, the second part, was it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then the third part um, is about play. So I want to share another quote uh, with you from an account I really like on Instagram called Sweet Home Montessori. Oh, and we love quotes says, here. <laughs> yeah. She says, when you cut it for me, write it for me, open it for me, set it up for me, draw it for me or find it for me, 
all I learned is that you do it better than me. So we think that we're helping our children and being good parents by catering to their every need and you know oh they want they want this toy out of the box let me open open the package and give them the toy right or they they want juice so let me you know get the cup and the juice and pour it they want the juice but really it's more about honoring the process like they're trying to learn about the world they want to learn how to open a package how to get a cup you know from the counter and the juice out of the refrigerator there's more to it than just the outcome so by letting children do things for themselves and valuing the process versus the outcome, we can really provide a lot of you know, resources and education in, in the way of letting them go through the motions versus doing everything for them. And, and so playing with children in a way that is self-directed on their part, it's child-led and it's uninterrupted whenever possible is one of the most effective and impactful ways that we can genuinely boost our child's self-esteem. So not constantly entertaining them. It's not us, you know, building the Lego castle while they watch, you know, it's not us saying, okay, like, let's play hide and see, you go there, you do that, you do this. We're not the ones orchestrating the whole play, even though it's easy to fall into that role. And we think, you know, we're connecting and having fun with a child. And of course there's a time and a place for that, but being mindful of it and making sure that there's also a time and a place for the child to be, the screenwriter and the director and the producer of the play with you. And you're the one following, letting the child lead. That's important and for that self-esteem. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally does. Um, and yeah, play definitely is is something even as adults we should encourage ourselves to do. So um, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, really agree with what you're saying on helping encourage them then play uh we often forget it as we sort of go through life but mm-hmm. um absolutely now that that makes total sense um so kind of one one last question really yeah. so obviously you you do a lot of work and yes yeah, it sounds like obviously there's a parents and i don't i'm not going to pretend i know what it's like to be a parent but it sounds like there's a you know a fair few things to think about so my complete admiration to yourself and all parents out there especially to mine who are fantastic wonderful parents I've got um but yeah sounds like there's a lot of different factors so there's there's quite a lot of people out there and people who listen to this podcast so you might be listening now and you might be listening now and hearing this thinking okay my my childhood wasn't the best and perhaps uh it could have been better but I've got a struggle my self-esteem now so how I, I kind of talk about this a lot what would you is there any kind of key tips you would recommend for someone who perhaps had that struggling childhood and how they can look after their self-esteem now or improve it? Yeah, so I mean, as with anything, I would say kind of just bringing this newfound awareness to how our self-esteem is developed should help gain some perspective, right? Everything that we've been talking about so far up until this point once we can kind of understand the soil that we're planted in, we can then choose which parts of our past are beneficial to helping us further grow and flourish in the future, and then which parts we can let go of. So if you can identify with some of these things I've been talking about in your own childhood with your own parents, you know, we can do a lot to make conscious decisions about letting go of that that's not serving us going forward. So we do a lot of very intentional, but gentle emotional release work in my programs um, with parents to help clear generational cycles of parenting that include 
low self-esteem. And, you know, I would say keep listening to your podcast here, maybe make a gratitude journal, kind of adopt an abundance mindset, but really just, um, you know, this knowledge that this is how self-esteem is developed should take a lot um, off your shoulders. I hope that it's not a problem with you. It's not your fault. You know, this is just ingrained in our culture that we're taught to speak to and um, teach children in this way that's very top-down approach and gives the child very little opportunities for developing a genuine sense of self-esteem unless it's, um, you know, done really intentionally by someone uh, who has this knowledge. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, the awareness, the awareness factor is absolutely key. And um, yeah. me, me and myself and uh, Danielle were talking before the show and actually I was, you, you might be, it might be a new podcast for you if you're listening now. Um, and I was actually sharing my story of when I was two and a half and I lost the baby brother, but I was kind of with family, friends and various things like that. And actually it created this belief within me, even though I've got an amazing, wonderful family of just those memories and thinking, am I not lovable? Am I not enough? What's wrong with me? What have I done wrong? And then I got lost a couple of times as a kid and um, various things like that. And just those, those beliefs formed in my head, but actually creating that awareness really helped me because then I was able to uh, and I won't go into it this episode, but we have other episodes when I talk about these beliefs and incantations of Tony Robbins' method of really embedding this new identity and these beliefs into yourself. But actually that awareness and understanding those beliefs that might have been created through childhood is a really good starting point because then that helps us to identify, OK, what where did that come from and actually what do we want to believe and why is that not serving us anymore how can we go forward so i love that point about awareness absolutely so that's great exactly. yeah couldn't have said it better myself there perfect <laughs> i love it thank, <laughs> thank you. you well danielle it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show and you've given so much value so i'm so grateful that we made contact and uh, i've learned an awful lot today and i'm sure <laughs> everyone listening has learned an awful lot to this today. Um, so just in case people want to find more of you, which I'm sure uh, people will, because it's fascinating stuff. Where's the best place to find you in terms of website and social media and various sources? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, um, the HAP method. That's the name of my coaching practice. And again, it stands for honor, authenticity and purpose, H-A-P. And um, social media, I have a free Facebook group you can join called Patient Connected Parents. And then my website is thehapmethod.com. I offer programs at both ends of the price range spectrum because I don't want anyone to not be able to access this information that I feel is so important. And so if this type of work, if what we're ta talking about, if that interests you and you want to learn more, you know, regardless of your pocketbook, there's a place for you in this community. And you can start by joining that Facebook group, connecting with me. I'm in there all the time, you know, posting checklists and worksheets and eBooks and answering questions um, and really connecting with the members in that group who aspire to this philosophy and really want to raise their children in this mindful and intentional way. Awesome. That sounds great. And I'll be linking all this in the uh, the description of the episode as well. So people can people can uh, directly link themselves to there. Uh, so some great resources we've got there. Once again, uh, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on today. And it's been great talking to you. 
You as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Right. And I will catch everyone in the next episode. Uh,